Hi, my name's Bryony Edwards, and I'm from a group called CASE, Community Action in the Climate Emergency, or for the Climate Emergency, we're quite new. Um, and this is Philip Sutton, and Philip's from Research and Strategy Transition Initiation. Yeah, uh, We're from Victoria, and we're here to talk about uh, what's happening in Darabin Council, which you may have heard of, with relation to the climate emergency, and then also what we're trying to make happen across Australia. So uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land, and I think it's the Ngunnawal. Um, and I'd like to pay my respect to elders past and present and el any elders here today. So tonight we'll talk about what's Darabin doing, what they've done, why emergency, why councils, and now the world. Okay? So what's Darabin doing? This is um, Darabin. Has anyone heard of Darabin Council? Yeah. Is, any, is anyone here from Victoria? Yeah, well, it's not many. Okay, so there's Darabin. It's a kind of inner north, middle north, LGA, it's 53 square Ks, and it's about 155,000 people. It's traditionally Labor. As you know, there's a North, Northcote is part of Darabin. There's a Northcote by-election happening in the moment, at the moment, and it's going to be a toss-up between Labor and the Greens. And you heard, you were listening to, some people were listening to Lydia Thorpe, who's the Greens candidate running in Northcote just in the last session. And Northcote is at the bottom of the LGA. So we had our local government elections last year. On the left, the squares represent less progressive candidates and the circles represent more progressive candidates. So there was a shift. We became more progressive. There was, um, in terms of the Greens, there was one Green in the original council and Trent, had been, Trent McCarthy had been there for eight years. Um, there were four Greens in the next council and then three more progressives and two Labors, oh, sorry, uh, some more, three independents, I think, and two Labors, there's nine candidates, there's nine councillors altogether. Um, interestingly, when the, the council changed, the Labor councillors, who had been quite, you know, one of them had been probably quite obstructive in the last, not obstructive, but not very progressive in the last council, has become fantastically progressive and trumpeting climate emergency. So the dynamic is everything in a council, it can, and it can really change. So what did Darabin do? The very first motion that the council passed at the very first meeting with the new councillors was to say that we are in a climate emergency. They passed the motion that said, can you hear me? It doesn't. Yeah. Council recognises that we are in a state of climate emergency that requires urgent action by all levels of government, including by local councils. So that you know, that's just words, but it's saying this is where we are. And once you put that matzo ball out there, you've got to do something about it. The next thing they did was one of the independent councillors, Susan Rennie took a very similar motion to the MAV, which is Victoria's local government peak body, the Municipal Association of Victoria. She put a very similar motion up there, um, and it passed, was passed by 77% of councils in Victoria. Now, that is incredible. We are in a state of climate emergency. Oh, sorry. We're in a state of climate emergency that requires urgent action by all levels of government, including local councils. Human-induced climate change stands in the first rank of threats to humans, civilization, and other species. 
It is still possible to restore a safe climate and prevent most of the anticipated long-term climate impacts, but only if societies across the world adopt an emergency mode of action that can enable the restructuring of the physical economy at the necessary scale and speed. The MAV has a particular role in assisting local governments in this regard. So that was May this year. What else did they do? Then they developed a climate action, climate action plan, and uh, sorry, climate emergency plan. Now a lot of councils, oh, here it is, very good. Well, good forward thinking. Um, many councils have a climate plan and it sort of sits in a bottom drawer and at the end of four years they go, oh, oh well, well we just roll it over into the next climate plan. They haven't probably met many of the targets. Darabin, to overcome that problem, prioritised it in their strategic plan. So if you look at their strategic plan, the climate emergency sits at the very top of the strategic plan. Councils are supposed to look after their constituents and, and that's what they're doing. They've also funded a climate emergency officer. They've established a foundation to carry out climate, the climate emergency acts, and that's very uh, constituent-based. There's not just constituents. Um, Phillips on that, the, um, the Darabin. It's, at the moment, it's called the Darabin Energy Foundation, but it might morph into something else. Um, they've, they're also going to run a local government climate emergency conference early next year. They are working with other councils. They're sort of networking with other councils who want to do the same thing. They are also, so Northcote, you've heard about the by-election. I'm running in the by-election as a climate emergency candidate. I thought we were going to just be, the council has said, we are going to survey every candidate on some of the issues. The top issue is climate emergency. I just got a call from the mayor's office. They actually want me to come in and interview me. So I'm not sure what kind of comms they're going to put out afterwards, but that's um, just amazing. That's amazing action for a council to take. Um, and what's, what's our vision? Our vision, we've been campaigning... Philip has been campaigning this, for this since the early noughties, um, as has... Uh, Philip wrote Climate Code Red. You might be familiar with that. That was a real kind of change book of um, 2008, I think it came out, with Philip Sutton. Um, so Philip's been campaigning on this a long time, as has my partner, Adrian Whitehead. And we're, I think we're all in the same kind of thinking as the councillors, as the Darabin councillors are now. We're all on the same page. Um, I, I, I say that. That might be a huge assumption, but it, but it seems to be that way. And Philip would far be able to better comment on that. So what's the vision? It's a downwards, sideways and upwards action. So it's grassroots. It's very grassroots. So we want, the, but we're starting at the council level. The councils talking to other councils, councils, we want to then educate the community. You can do, you know, the, the, the campaigners can do some of that education, but the councils can do a lot of that education. And then we want to build that groundswell and move upward to state and federal. Um, and of course, they then declare a climate emergency and take the appropriate action. So why emergency? So this is the feel-good part of the talk. So if we went to zero emissions today, could we stabilise temperatures? Does anyone know what this is? A sinkhole in Siberia. And what's coming out of that sinkhole? Methane, yeah. So these started appearing a few years ago in 
Siberia, I think there's about 400 at last count. And at first the locals had no idea what was happening. There were just these huge explosions and it's the tundra melting and all that methane that's been locked in for millions of years just exploding out of the ground. So it's probably not a good thing. So it's one of these, you know, it's one of the major tipping points. And here's uh, five, here's six tipping points, that being one of them. They're all about release of carbon dioxide, release of methane, or reduced reflectivity of the Earth. Now, what does Kylie have to do with this? Kylie from the locomotion days, I should say. When did the locomotion come out? <laughs> Everyone knows that song. When was it? 80s, 80s, it was late 80s. Late 80s is the same time we started talking. Well, climate change became common knowledge and you know, people were going, oh my God, what are we gonna do? And of course, lots of people knew about it already. Um, and at the same time, we started talking about these tipping points. These were just theoretical tipping points and we got more, you know, more ideas about them as time went on. But they were theoretical, they were never gonna happen, they were way in the future. And so here we are, we've reached all these tipping points now. We've reached them all, we're entering them. And of course, tipping, these speed up. Reduced reflectivity, the, the polar ice melts, the earth absorbs more heat, and that speeds up, further speeds up the melting of the ice, etc. So you know about tipping points. So here's the mother and father of climate change. There's other mother and fathers, but these are really key ones. Same time as Kylie came out with the locomotion. And that's some more historical context. So even zero today is not enough. We have to reverse global warming. We don't, we don't just say, oh, zero emissions at some point in the future, that'll slow it down and everything will be dandy. That, that's not true. We have to reverse global warming to stabilise these tipping points. So is anyone talking about reversing global warming? How often do you hear that? Anything similar? No, it's very, people are very careful not to talk about that. But here are some groups that are talking about reversing global warming quite specifically. Um, and in the top left, you can see Trent McCarthy. He's holding up a candidate statement of support for the National Climate Emergency Declaration. And there's a declaration for every level of government. And um, he, yeah, so that's just him with his picture. He's a, as I said, he's a Darabin councillor. And all of these other groups, the Climate Mobilisation is a US group that actually Philip works with quite closely. And they, I think they based a lot of his, their work on Climate Code Red. They originally, no, they, um, before the last US election, they got climate emergency language into the democratic nat national platform. Um, so they were very disappointed when Trump won. But they're now really focusing on local governments, on, on what they can do, and they, they seem to be getting really good traction, so, for example, with Los Angeles. So, Climate emergency response. There are a few essential components of a climate emergency response, and any way you cut it, it's hard to see how you would do without any one of these. So firstly, you make a formal recognition that we are facing a climate emergency and something needs to be done. You don't know what you're gonna do yet, but you have gotta do something about it. And that's what Darabin did with their, their motion to, to recognise that we're in a climate emergency. The next thing you do is you declare, you work out what you're gonna do, then you declare a climate emergency. Um, and then 
because it's an emergency, you're going to throw more resources at it than you would if it was business as usual. And that, that's often referred to as mobilisation. And you say, you work out how you're going to go to zero emissions. And that, that can be very difficult for a local government to do, but you think about everything you can do in that space. And you also think about drawdown. So if, we're, if, we, if going to zero emissions isn't enough, it means we need to suck all those extra greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and get down to safe parts per million, which is actually about under 300. So it's, that's talking about drawing down. We got it down to, you know, we're at over 400 ppm at the moment. We got a zero, they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. So we need to suck them back down. Meet the methane, that's going somewhere, but it will still take 20 years to break down. Um, okay, sorry, is it now if I said, yeah. So why councils? Oh yeah, what else, what else do you do in a climate emergency response is you do lots of research and development and then you do whatever else it takes. So why councils? How can a council help reverse global warming when all the big levers sit with state and federal governments? So what are the, th well, I've, I've told you there, the three R's. What are the three R's of local government? Rates, roads and rubbish. So that's, that's totally minimalist. That's 1960s local government. We know today that they do so much more than that. They do community services. They do, do really do a lot. And they have it, they are, able to do a lot. They, they're really not restricted very much by what they can do. Um, sorry, rates, roads and rubbish. Rates. So Darabin, for example, so just within the actual skeletal scope of what councils have, rates, Darabin has solar savers. They've had this for years, but now they're really ramping it up. They use they, uh, pensioners who want rooftop solar they sell it to them and the pensioners pay them back from their utility savings through the rates. So there you have it. There's a lever for rates. Roads, you've got, you know, you can say, okay, in this, we're going to block off this whole street that goes into the city for, you know, four kilometres. It's going to be local traffic only and bicycles can ride down it. You know, one example of what you can do with roads, of course, you can do a lot with roads. You can put in electric charges. You can do so much. Um, sorry, keep going. Rubbish. Now, this is one of my favourite ones. So all of the organic waste that goes into our landfills produces methane, etc., etc., 100 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. We can actually do a lot with that to stop that methane from escaping. And also, we can get biochar. If uh, It's been sort of calculated, and I've heard between 10 and 20%. If we burnt all of our... If we turned all of our organic waste into biochar, we would draw down 10 to 20% of our national emissions each year. So what councils can do, they can lead. And there's that real advocacy role, and Darabin's playing that. You, you're vocal about it. You're saying, you're declaring a climate emergency. You're saying, this is what we need to do. Oh, you didn't know there's a climate emergency. Yes, there's a, there's a climate emergency. Then they can educate the community, and council has so much interaction with the community, a much more intimate relationship than state and federal governments. And they have all their, their, their committees and their community groups, so, and regular communication through newsletters. Then there's the zero emissions piece. Um, that's, you know, power ledger, 
reposit systems, microgrids, and that's the waste as well, zero emissions, asking people not to eat meat or really reduce their ruminant intake. Um, then there's the drawdown. You've got, you've got urban forests. You can you know, do so much with urban forests. Melbourne has a goal of, I think it's 25% canopy cover by 2020, and, and a few other councils around Australia have canopy cover goals. Um, and that's also resilience, it's cooling, um, and drawdown, biochar, and, and what else, whatever else we can do, soil carbon. And then there's resilience building. And that, because councils are responsible for um, emergency plans, things like that. So that they have a very particular role there. Water management, flood management, lots of things they can do there. All right, so again, why councils? Who's this? Very disappointing lot, I'm sure you'd agree. <laughs> Not far from here, that's the state now, sorry, that's the state Victorian parliament. This is Darabin Council, or seven of the nine members. Aren't they wonderful? This is uh, our wonderful mayor, Kim I get, I get choked up every time I think of Darabin Council. I really do. I just think they're absolutely the bee's knees. Um, so imagine the innovation and work that can happen here compared to there. You start where you can and you build it up from that. The conversations, you know, I've taken this to Western Australia and everyone goes, wow, yeah, they just get it instantly. And, uh, you know, there's other councils in WA working on climate emergency plans now. When we talk to some councils, they say, look, it needs to be real. I need to know how I can draw down emissions. I think at this stage, before the state and federal governments declare a climate emergency, Councils really need to play this advocacy role. They can also innovate, work with other councils, build economies of scale, develop new models for responding to climate emergency, but they need to play that loud megaphone role as well. So what can you do? Explore climate emergency in your groups. Start a local chapter. Where there's a West Australian case chapter that deals with this now, and, and, and issues are different everywhere. Um, talk to your councils, encourage candidates or councillors to sign the candidate statement of support for the climate emergency declaration and run as a climate emergency candidate as well. And this is just the climate emergency declaration. It's climateemergencydeclaration.org. Please go to it, please sign and, and spread it around, share it. Um, and these are just our, when, if you want to find out more, we're building a clearinghouse on the case website, which is caseonline.org. Um, the Climate Emergency Declaration also has some information. Um, and there's my email, communityactionclimate at gmail.com. And you might not all be fans of Winston Churchill, but I think he came out with some really great quotes, and this is one of them. So it's not enough to say we're doing our best we have to do what's necessary. And that's our only, you know, we've got this one chance now and we've got to take it and do everything that is necessary. So I'll hand over to Philip now to talk about some of the, the deeper theory behind all this. Can you hear me okay here? Okay, great. If you don't mind, I might just sit down because I've got these props that I've got to kind of wave in front of you at certain moments. Um, what I want to talk about is the interaction between the theory and the practice. Um, what's happened is that most of the campaign methodologies 
not all, but a lot of the campaign methodologies that we've been using on climate were actually developed over a period of, of many decades, you know, sort of like 100 years, 50 years, whatever, a long time, in a period in which often environmental activism was seen as... Um, something where you were trying to get concessions from a mainstream and you weren't expecting to make fundamental change to the, to the core arrangements of, of the economy or, or something of that sort. Um, it was also something where, in many cases, we thought the problems were some time in the future. We, I can remember going to schools and talking about, you know, we have to do this for our grandchildren. Um, well, I'm now sufficiently ancient that I'm doing it for myself and my children and everybody else's families and friends and whatever. Um, okay, so, so what's the connection between the theory and the practice? Um, we know that the reef, Great Barrier Reef and coral reefs around the world are dying right now. We know that the Syrian war was substantially worsened because of uh, the drought that was substantially worsened by climate change. And this kind of pattern of extremely serious um, impacts, I mean, cyclones, hurricanes, whatever, the, the list goes on. We, we are now in the period in which severe damage is being done to people and ecosystems around the world so it's no longer a future issue and what we have to do is we have to rediscover climate as if we had had amnesia for the last 40 years and we just woke up today and we looked out and we found that people are having their their communities smashed to pieces by by climate um uh, you know, severely climate worsened um, hurricanes and, and cyclones, that um, ecosystems are being smashed to pieces around the world. And we would say, oh my God, how did this happen? What, what's causing it? And then you go out and you'd find, oh, it's because the world's too hot. But because we've just discovered this issue right now, we'd say it's too hot right now. You have to hold that in your head. If it's too hot right now, what does that mean for urgency? Um, if it's too hot right now, it's because there's too much greenhouse gas in the air right now. What does that mean for urgency? If there's too much in the air, what does that mean for drawdown? So in other words, we've got a very big job with immediate urgency. And it's not, a, it's not a, an insignificant problem. And if we think what we've got now is bad, wait until you see what it's like in 5 and 10 and 15 years' time. I don't mean 100 years, just, just the next few years. See how things go. Now... Okay, how would, you, how would you deal with that? Now, 10 years ago or so, a group called Beyond Zero Emissions started work on trying to develop plans for how we could actually produce a zero emissions economy. Now, these are just some of their reports that cover different sectors. Um, agriculture, cement, uh, uh, stationary energy, you know, power stations and so on, uh, electric vehicles, buildings plans. Okay, you can imagine that there's a few other sectors of the economy left out of that list, but they're working on it. And when you're finished you'll have an encyclopedia of things that we should be doing. Now, we should be doing them all right now. So it's an incredibly complex task. So, okay, now let's do a bit of theory. When in the past have we ever done something on such a huge physical scale with such urgency? And the answer is, it's an unpleasant answer, but the answer is the Second World War. And when you go back and say, how did they do so many things? I mean, of course, most of what they did at that time was killing 55-plus million people, which is not something that... Like, that's not the issue. The, sorry, the issue is they were able to mobilise around a task. The fact that they were mobilising around massacring each other in, in absolutely stupendous numbers shows the, the stupidity of us of all as human beings. But we can apply the same creativity, if you like, to another problem, in this case, to save lives on an even bigger scale. So how do you deal with this level of complexity? 
after the First World War, um, sorry, in the Second World War, they s thought, oh my God, we've just been through the First World War, how did we mobilise that economy again? And so they looked around and couldn't find anything in the files. And so they made a, a note to self, which was, let's document how to run a, a, a mobilisation of the economy. So this book, for example, is documenting how the Americans mobilised their economy. It was written just after the Second World War, and there are books of this sort through the libraries right around the world. Um, and then other people since then have kind of digested that material. So this is, what do they do during the Second World War? What do they do in the interwar period between First and Second? And what do they do in the First World War? Okay, so, so far, so interesting. What's that got to do with climate change? The thing is that if you have got something which, in order to identify what needs to be done, you have to write that much stuff, this is not a one-issue, one-campaign job because there's 2,000 years' worth of single-issue campaigns in just the books that I've got in my hand. So we have, to, we have to treat this as a single campaign and a single program which does everything. Now, that is just totally different from what we normally do. So if we're going to do that, can the theories of change that we use for incremental gradualist you know, responses, can that work? Very unlikely. Well, I mean, the answer is no. They can't work for this type of problem. So what do we do? Well, we have to invent this stuff from scratch. We have to do it under an extreme speed. And we can learn from some elements of what's happened in the past. One of the things I found really interesting was that um, somebody called Lester Brown, who, who probably introduced the World War II metaphor for economic mobilisation into the environmental movement, he used to refer to the Second World War and he said, oh, it's amazing what they did after Pearl Harbour. They turned around the economy and they stopped making motor vehicles in America, you know, in the space of a couple of months and, you know, they made the whole economy work to a different purpose overnight. Well, I went back and read the, the material on, on the history of it and it turns out that uh, in fact, between the First and Second World War, they'd, sorry, this, this one, um, they, they had been um, planning how to do this stuff for something like about 20 years. They had a four-year holiday after the First World War and then they got back onto the job of working out how to mobilise for the Second World War. So it wasn't, it wasn't a new thing. How are we going for time? Um, but the, ne the next thing, and this is the really crucial thing, when, when the... Um, when all the belligerents in the Second World War got serious about the, about the war. They, all of them, whether they were Tory Britain um, or left-wing um, America or uh, under Roosevelt or right-wing Australia under Menzies, or it, didn't, it did not matter who it was, they all adopted the same basic economic management method. Now, how on earth could that happen? I mean, was this some kind of you know, mind meld thing that, you know, beamed in from outer space or something. You cannot get left and right. Like, the, the method they used during the Second World War for the economic mobilisation was the antithesis of neoliberalism. It was, it was focused, it was targeted, it used um, regulation, it used um, planning, it used, you know, the dreadful terms command and control. It was a very, very different model from, from, from neoliberalism. In those days, they called it laissez-faire. And the funny thing was that all the parties, left and right, all adopted the same method. The reason, it turns out, if you have to dig further into the history, is you have to go back to the First World War. And what happened was that the British and the Americans and the French and what have you were up against the Germans, 
and the Prussians, who were the kind of the core of the of the German military at that state, you know, history is that the Prussians developed their kind of military method, and they had a history going a long way back, where in wartime they would adopt a very strong um, control over the, the the economy to get the productivity that they wanted for for war making, and so it took um, Britain, who hated this approach, up and from 1914 to 1917, nearly the whole war, to learn through pragmatic experience that if they did not adopt different methods for running the economy, they could not beat the Germans. So it was pragmatism driven by extreme provocation led people to take their old ideologies and bit by bit by bit toss them out the window because they didn't work. It was pure pragmatism in that sense. And so what happened was that they learnt that lesson and and then in the Second World War at, in a sense, at a moment, they were able to adopt this a different approach. Now, where are we with climate? We are not in the Second World War. We are beginning to learn how to deal with this problem, but at least, in a sense, we have the advantage. We can go back to history as a fast economic change and see what people did about that, and we can say, OK, well, how much of this is relevant to what we're doing? Now, in order to change the whole economy at the scale we need to... I've probably got about minus two minutes to go now. OK, in order to change this on the scale we need, we need a national mobilisation. You cannot get a national mobilisation around this stuff with a a national politics that is not tuned into it. You have to have the constituency. Now, I strongly recommend people go out, if they're interested in politics, they go out and read the book Crossing the Chasm by Geoffrey Moore. It's about how to sell high-tech products to mainstream markets. It's it's the least likely thing you'd ever look for as a political guide. But what 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 this guy points out is that most people in relation to key issues are either pragmatists or conservatives. And so they're basically, the pragmatists are kind of waiting to see whether something will work. So if you've got an unprecedented problem, there is no case study that you can look at. Right? So that's the problem. The pragmatists won't move until they see somebody else do it. And so to cut the long story short, how do we get this thing going? Okay, I'm going to have to rattle this off at, no, at lightning speed. You cannot get the national government on side if there's no constituency. You can't get the whole place on side because the pragmatists and conservatives of the Labor Party and the Liberal Party and even in our own Greens circuit, our pragmatists and and our conservatives won't do something unless somebody else has shown it's possible. And so you have to find a place in the community somewhere where it seems like a good thing to do. And if you do the mathematics, there's one national government not too many chances to succeed at that one without prep- much preparation. There's eight states and territories, still mathematically not a really hot prospect, but there's 500 and whatever it is, 37 local councils. So the chance that you can find somewhere in Australia where people would take this stuff seriously turns out to be highly probable, which is why, in fact, Darabin did it, because the community had been campaigning on climate for for decade, you know, for a decade, um, the councillors were well informed about this stuff. They happened to know a lot about the subject. They happened to be very passionate. All the pieces came together. Now, so there's a starting point. Now, the problem is that local government has, as, as Rani said, has very few levers of power. It doesn't control the taxation system. It doesn't control most of the infrastructure, spe- you know, delivery. It doesn't control most of the regulatory stuff on environment. These are all state and national responsibilities. So if the local government's the only place you can start, the risk is that it'll never get out of the local government ghetto unless local government itself realises its job is to be national campaigners. 
And that's the magic thing about what Darabin's done. They recognise their own, their own limitations, but their strength, their strength is connection to the community and the, the community power that comes with that. And so they can actually help in, engage the community in taking this out into the wider community, across Australia, into community groups, across Australia, into other local governments, building up from all those local governments to state and territory governments and then circling in on the national government. There's a lot more to it than that. But I just want to finish by saying that we have to, we have to constantly work between the real problem, the pragmatics of what surrounds that, and developing our theories of change based on the principle that we, that we want to succeed, but we can't succeed by just repeating old formulae from old campaigns. We've got to do stuff that's tailor-made to this thing. The, the nearly final thing I want to say is, I, when, I've, when I've floated this campaign strategy past people in the climate movement, most people say you cannot talk about emergency, you cannot message it, it scares the horses, people don't believe it, um, it it's a total turn-off, we won't do it. So that's the first reaction. Second reaction is, oh, I, I said at one stage, look, the people who seem to be responding to this best are the Greens. So the Greens um, branch in South Australia has unanimously supported an emergency response. So is the New South Wales branch. Um, there are the, the Darabin branch in Victoria is leading the charge, in fact, on the, on the delivery of this stuff. Um, so in other words, it's, it's a very broad brush thing within the Greens. We've got people, scads, scads of people coming out of the woodwork saying, yes, let's do this. So I put this to a person who does training for the climate movement in Australia, and his question was, don't you think this might be the kiss of death if the Greens take it on? And I thought, very interesting. The only people you can talk to are what, Labor and Liberal? What's, like People haven't worked out what, the, what to do with the Greens. Mostly they don't do anything with the Greens. But the thing is that the Greens have the possibility, not the, not the def not a certainty, but the possibility of taking this climate emergency response and turning it into one of the major defining features of, of, of what the party can do. And because somebody has to be visionary, somebody has to take the lead and de-risk it for the people who are pragmatic and are risk-averse. And so that's the thing. I've found myself in, in the wonderful position of going from being a, a lobbyist and an external advocate to becoming an advisor to, um, to a government in Australia that is driving a national climate emergency program. Like, they are a government. It is a national program. They're totally aware of it. It's written right throughout their documentation, their, their plan, and they're act, acting on it. And then we try to do it. And then the problems arise, but they're beautiful problems because they're the problems of implementation after 10 years of theorising, this is a chance to begin implementing the climate emergency response and starting to roll it out across the country and also linking it up with people doing similar things in other parts of the world. These are beautiful problems to have. Thank you. Um, I, I agree that there is this difference of opinion within within the scientific community itself. I mean, it's interesting. Often it's not so much a disagreement about facts. It's actually a disagreement about how to interpret what the facts mean. Yeah. And so I think that's where it emerges. Um, I, I started out early in my career a long time ago, like four decades ago, campaigning to save the Great Barrier Reef from oil drilling. The Great Barrier... Like, the, the damage that would have been done by oil drilling would have been terrible, but nowhere near as bad as what, what is being done right now by climate change. 
I think what's happened is that when you said you know it may be bad by the middle of you know the middle of the century, I think what's happened is we are get we are, I don't know whether people remember the boiling frog syndrome, which is that if change if you get used to change occurring, you normalise whatever is the current situation until something that's intolerable is something that you feel like you just have to put up with until it kills you. That's where we are now. We are we we don't have to look for any predictions about anything, because all we have to do is look and say if if I were an activist. 30 or 40 years ago, would I, have, would I have tolerated the idea that the damage that's now occurring would have been allowed to occur? And I can tell you that people would not have accepted that. But we have just got used to it because it's what's happening. So, OK. Um, I think the, the other thing is that the climate... Uh, often climate scientists mix things up, so I have to keep this short. Um, the IPCC... Recently, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, the scientific body, and also the, uh, in, um, the uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat have changed their uh, indicators of a suitable policy from a 50-50 chance of achieving a certain target to a one-in-three chance uh, of, of missing. Right? That's, equivalent, that's literally equivalent to playing Russian roulette initially with half, half the six three of the six chambers filled with bullets and then they've just upgraded it so now we've only got two bullets in in the in the revolver in a six chamber revolver that's the level of safety um if but but on the other hand normal engineering pe people who don't really worry about being sort of super safe they go for one in a thousand or one in ten thousand risk of failure if it if it's a matter of life or death or you know serious injury or whatever so in normal stuff when we're designing you know kids playground equipment or bridges or whatever, we have a, a many-fold safer approach than we do to climate change, which affects literally everyone and every living thing on the planet. There's something seriously wrong. What happened was that they accidentally took a measure out of scientific research method, which had nothing to do with safety, and then put it into the safety framework and never bothered to check with safety experts. So... I agree. We don't start... We cannot afford to start with where the international negotiations are going. Now, this creates a big practical problem for local councils that are trying to mount a national program. Because who the hell is Darabin Council? How come they can challenge the International Panel on Climate Change? Now, the answer is that Darabin is going to have to create the capacity to to look at all the issues involved in, in climate change, start going right back to the question of what is an appropriate targets, and they will have to start interrogating the scientists directly and saying, our residents, we have surveyed our residents and found that they care about the Pacific Islanders having their homes, they care about the people of Bangladesh, they care about, you know, the list goes on and on and on. They care about these things. OK, scientists, what would we have to do to provide certain protection for those people and those living things? And then once you ask really pointed questions to the scientists that are very well specified like that, they will have to answer that you have to do much, much more than is being currently talked about in these other circles. So we can build that. Remember what happened with the, with the Garneau Review, which is a government review. It was a national program, yes? No? Anybody, anybody think it wasn't national? Right, OK. It was a national program, but only afterwards. What happened was that it was the Victorian government that set up the Garno Review in seven, 2006 or thereabouts, or maybe it's very early 2007. It got support from the, the local, from other states, 
And then when um, Kevin Rudd and you know when Labor formed government at the national level, they moved the Garno review from the state level and pushed it up to the national level. We're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to start something which has got enormous scope and enormous. Um, I hate the word ambition because it's not, it's not ambition for the sake of it. Enormous commitment, and we're going to have to create that at a local level because there is nowhere else to create it. And then we're going to have to grow that thing constantly with a, with a global and national vision. And then as we get an opportunity, we push it up the levels of government until it finally is Australia's national program. When we say zero emissions, we know that's a stretch goal for a local government. Um, people still have cars. There's system change that needs to happen. Um, people still take flights. It's, and so a lot of that is community education. That's where the community education, the advocacy comes in. But then there's also the the innovation work that can happen when councils join together and then other stakeholders join in and universities and so on and can really put resources into developing a picture of what that system change can look like or how it's going to work. So I think that's... Do you have anything to add? Yeah, just a quick one. I mean, I think that... Um the places where most of those decisions that you're talking about get made are in New South Wales, Victoria, and you know, like the big, the, the states surrounding the ACT, and and there's obviously some influence from the federal government, and then of course the imports and exports. But if if the ACT government was prepared to promote emergency action, and then just kind of did a, a very factual, very cold view of who who causes the problems we have to fix. And you just have a ledger which says, this is what we control, this is what we don't. And therefore then promote the, the outward spread of the emergency program to the places that are causing your problems, or our problems, if you like, then I think that can work. We, we, we just simply, we, we can't just look at the silos and saying, I'm only responsible for, for what I can control in my own area, my own jurisdiction. I think what we have to do for some time is for every jurisdiction to take total responsibility and then just do this assessment, what can I control? And then you do what you can. And then what, what can't I control, but what can I influence? And then the, the influence program has got to be ramped up at emergency speed and scale itself because we have to get the other states and the other territories and the other countries on side. And so I think it becomes really important, like the work that ACT does in COAG and, and in the intergovernmental relations could be quite critical in this thing. Um, if, if a level of government above local government was to support and, and support the work being done by local governments prepared to do climate emergency, that also gives more kudos, uh, like more respectability to the councils that are taking on this job. And so basically, the more political entities and jurisdictions that take it on, the easier it will be for us to complete the task and, and take it right across the country and right up to the national level and, and internationally. Um, just a quick one. We've a, a um, Margaret Hender in South Australia, who's a member of the Greens, um, started the National Climate Emergency Petition Declaration Petition, and um, up to this, well, up until the South Australian Conservation Council um, backed it and set up their own um, sort of sympathetic um, uh, petition as well. So, in other words, it was part of the part of the joint effort. Um, up until that point, um, this petition gathering exercise had no support from any big groups at all. It was it was a very, totally grassroots individual effort. Um, but that effort grew until 20,000 signatures were collected. And what we've found from experience of people going into just regular shopping centres and and not in the most kind of hipsterish centres of of town uh, that 
that the average punter who actually knows about climate change is not put off by the emergency, in general, is not put off by the emergency messaging. The people who tend to be put off are people who are familiar with climate activism and have learnt the truism that people can't cope with this idea. And, and we've learnt that lesson from a period when the climate emergency was not apparent in, re, in the real world, and now the punters are seeing it happening around them, on the tellies and, you know, on their YouTube feeds and all the rest of it. So they, they're, not, they're not as opposed to it as you think. Darabin City Council passed motions about the climate emergency and about getting rid of Australia Day, sorry, you know, moving Australia Day or whatever, and all the controversy in the media and in the community was around the Australia Day decision and nobody batted an eyelid about the climate emergency. Mm-hmm. Can, can I just comment just quickly on that? Um, the fossil fuel industry controls directly maybe 10% of the world's money. Like they're, they're pretty rich compared to you and I, but they do not... Sorry? doesn't matter. Across a whole, whole economy, if you slice it up like salami or the vegan version or whatever, if you slice it up, you will find that, that even, even the richest of the fossil fuel companies only control a very small percentage of the total economy. Um, most parts of the economy and most people and whatever are not going to benefit from, from terrible climate change. So why, why are these companies that only control about 10% of the total amount of wealth, why are they so powerful? I asked Ross Garneau that once, and he replied instantly, which meant that he'd already, in a sense, thought about it. And he said, they, they have this influence because they're organised. Right? It's not because they're rich, it's because they're organised. Now, you flip that around and you say, OK, if the 90% are powerless at the moment, the 90% of the moneyed class are powerless, why is that? because they've got the money, it's because they're disorganised. And so, interestingly enough, we may be able to play some role in getting those people organised. Sorry, we've just got one more question up the front. Because the Greens, the national platform for the Greens isn't currently climate emergency. So, um, my partner, Adrian Whitehead, used to be convener of the Victorian Greens, back, I don't know when he stopped, early noughties or late 90s or something, and said that they, they just don't have a climate emergency response. And he left and started Save the Planet. We've never managed to get registered, but we run a climate... We, we preference... I mean, we don't expect to get elected, but what we do is we preference candidates based on their climate policy. Oh, I've put Animal Justice Party um, one year adopted our policy... And so did the sex party, believe it or not. So, so that was the first year the sex party came out and Fiona Patton had a really good conversation with Adrian. She said, yep, I'm going to do it. And they, they put up our policy as their policy pretty much. And, yeah, not, not good. Yes, yes, and the Greens are now, are now coming on board with it. So Animal Justice seemed to get it. Their leader really got it. He said, yeah, for animals, this is the biggest threat. And so they adopted it. But they've, they've sort of gone or washy on it too. So there's, you know, and they'll lobby about kennels and, you know, advocate, um, campaign on kennels and things like that, but not on, or greyhound racing. It's like, uh, this is a much bigger risk to animal welfare than, than greyhound racing. You know, they just don't, aren't doing the big picture anymore. So um, I've never put, we've never put Labor ahead of the Greens. And it's in, in, 
in Northcote, what it will come down to is how many preference, how many people put their, you know, preference Lydia above the Labor candidate Claire. It's like it doesn't matter if they're both at the bottom of the list or whatever. It's basically it's a tight race, and that's basically what it will come down to. So, um, and I've spoken to Lydia, and she's great, and she's been talking to Darabin Council and talking climate emergency with Darabin Council. So that makes me very confident, you know, about I, I, I don't know. She'll probably be. The, the guy at the top of the ballot is he comes to climate emergency meeting at, meetings every month, and I'll probably put him. I'll have to put him first. Mm. Can, can I just comment? What, what happened? The Greens' um, approach on climate emergency has been since about 2009, 2008. Um, uh, Christine Milne and Adam Bant have um, systematically said across the country we we face a climate emergency problem. So they've been quite unequivocal about the problem. But what hasn't happened, and we've been urging people to take up the idea of a climate emergency solution. Not because people, so this, this business about climate emergency being frightening and being negative, if you just connect it with the problem, then okay, it does heighten people's awareness of the problem, which is not necessarily utterly a bad thing. But if you don't attach it to, a, if you attach it to the solutions, then it's emergency speed of delivering solutions. Now, is that scary? Is that terrible? That's exciting. That's that's in, exhilarating, and so you can actually have an extremely positive campaign slogan around climate emergency action because it's delivering good things at a rate of knots. Now, what we haven't got is that repositioning um, across the Greens Party. The other thing, by the way, is that. Um, it's amazing how quickly some of this stuff can turn around. So in South Australia, which I don't know whether people think South Australia is kind of the most radical branch of the, of the Greens or not, whatever, but um, they have a system whereby... Is anybody from South Australia here, by the way? No? OK. The South Australian Greens have a system for forming member, um, whatever it is, uh, member action groups, MAGs or something like that. They set up a climate one with a, with a small number of people involved. Um, they... Under the rules, we're able to contact every branch. They put a motion to every branch about the, uh, adopting a climate emergency approach, like a solutions approach, and they got an overwhelmingly strong response so that at the last state council, the South Australian Greens adopted unanimously, I understand, um, the commitment to an, an emergency response. So that, that was, you know, like it wasn't a huge amount of work. I mean, the work would follow. If you wanted to make that rhetoric turn into something, then there'd be work to follow up on that. But the ability to actually turn this stuff around just really depends on activating the grassroots in the Greens, I think. And, and if you think the MAV, the Municipal Association of Victoria, 77% of councils across Victoria support that language. And that might, may not, you know, they, they, they weren't scared of that they... language. They might have been asleep, but, you know. <laughs> but it didn't that, wake them up. <laughs> like it presumably didn't... <laughs> they got these briefs before they went to the meeting, they got attachments to read and so on, so they knew what was in it. Um, that's that's quite amazing. But it, to make a like Darabin Council would be, I think, I imagine, very appreciative if other councils started standing up and saying, "This is a climate emergency, and we're going to declare that it's a climate emergency. We're going to come up with, or we're going to say it's a climate emergency and come up with a climate emergency plan." and really take on that advocacy role because that's what we need. We're not going to get it. If, if councils across Australia just use the levers they have to reduce emissions, like I said, that, that, like Philip pointed out, there's, you know, how are we going to get to 
the system change that we need from state and local government. That's why that advocacy role is so important, because otherwise we'll never get to those emissions. Um, I think we'd better stop there, but thank you very much for coming today and attending. <laughs>